We're going to continue in our worship with the reading of the word. And I'm going to be reading Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, if you want to follow along. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. If you're visiting today, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's good to have you visiting. There was no room in the inn. There's a census being taken. There's a context here that Luke is inviting us to see, and that's what I want to talk about today. There's something interesting going on, and we move over them pretty quick because this is just the introduction to the story. Why is there no room in the inn? What's going on? Before we get into it, I would ask you a question. Do you have everything that you need for this Christmas season? Do you have it all shored up? Do you have the money that you need? Do you have the decorations that you need, the stuff that you need? Do you have the time that you need? There are 21 more days until Christmas Eve, okay? Some of you just thought, if, if you're like me, you're like, oh, sweet, I've got three more weeks. That's plenty of time. Some of you are like, three weeks, oh my goodness, how am I going to get anything done? We have different reactions to that, but Christmas is an interesting and uh, tumultuous time sometimes. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. For some, it is an abundant season where we remember God's great gift, Jesus, who came with a gift, the gospel. A gift that was, was given who came with the greatest gift. It's unbelievable. So we think about this season of abundance and the God who has the character of generosity. And so that's what captivates our hearts and souls. For others, it's a season that allows no escape from the constant reminder that I don't have enough. For some Christmas is that, I don't have enough health in my relationships. I don't have enough relationship. I don't have enough money. There's no way that I can do what I would love to do, what I love the most, what I need the most. Christmas faces, it, it forces me to look at the fact that I don't have enough. For some of us, dudes, especially the most attractive and wisest among us, Christmas is a pass for buying Legos. All through the year, our wives say that's not a reasonable purchase, but at Christmas it becomes reasonable and you can buy Legos, which is important. This is, this is the time for our dear Savior's birth. We remember Jesus, the Christos, the Messiah, and he comes again with this euangelion that we studied for over a year, the gospel, the good news. And he catches us off guard a little bit when he comes in preaching the gospel of the kingdom because he doesn't come in and start giving a bunch of attaboys and saying, by golly, you guys, you are on the right track. Your trajectory is sound. Instead, he comes in and, and he starts to totally reverse some of our deepest held values. He flips over, he inverts some of the things we've held to be so true and important. And so we have now ended a very long study in Mark, and for the next four weeks in our Advent series, we're going to do four sermons that are based on that theme, overturning, flipping over the way that Advent, the way that Christmas, what it says about our world and our lives is, is a Jesus who comes in and says, you thought this was important and it's not. 
you thought this was crucial, and it's absolutely not crucial. And we'll look at four different major inversions like that. The one I want to look at today has everything to do with this statement. You have limited resources. You have limited time. Things are scarce. Okay? You have limited resources, limited time, and things are very scarce. I want to try to suggest through this story, and we'll look at two main passages, that those are lies. Those are the shadows of death in our world, and they've created a way of life that we're just absolutely rhythmically bound to. We don't even think about it. Day in and day out, we're driven by this sense that there are limited resources, limited time, and things are scarce. And in that mindset, what we believe is possible is very narrow. What we believe can happen in a human being's life is very, very constrained. But the gospel opens that up to to possibilities that we never really thought before. Ways of life that seemed stupid become really profoundly true when we fix our gaze upon the Bethlehem star instead of what goes under the tree. When we fix our gaze upon this light breaking into the darkness of our shadows in revealing something very different. It sounds so true, it feels so true to say something like, we have limited resources and time and things are scarce. Nobody in here is gonna be like, "Uh uh-uh, that's crazy. It's just how we're taught. But then we hear the echo of this young psalmist, David, and that's the passage I want to look at first. We hear this psalmist, David, in the most famous passage in the Bible, Psalm 23, and he, we remember this language of, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, I shall not want. That's a beautiful thought. We kind of think it's dumb, but it's a beautiful thought. It's very inspiring. I lack nothing. I shall not want. He leads me down to green pastures. He restores me. My cup, my cup of life is so full, it's running over. That is not the language of somebody who's living in the mindset of scarcity. So that's where I want to start. And then I want to go to Luke 2, which Mackenzie just read, and we'll look at the Christmas story, perhaps, from a different light as we just look at those opening verses. I think Luke 2, just Luke in general, he's opening our soul to sense a few very strangely familiar thoughts and questions that are hovering around and through the whole Christmas narrative. There's no more room in the inn. There's not enough space, but why? There's a need to count all of the people to take a census, but why? Things feel overcrowded. There's this latent anxiety between the lines. You can feel it when you read those opening lines of Luke's Luke's, uh, Christmas narrative. So we'll go to there after we start here. Steve, if you could put up the slide for Psalm 23. I'd like to read this with you and then break it down a little bit. It's a beautiful passage. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He takes me to lush pastures. He leads me to refreshing water. He restores my strength. He leads me down the right paths for the sake of his reputation. And even when I must walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they reassure me. You prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. You you refresh my head with oil. My cup is completely full. Surely your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all of my days, and I will live in the Lord's house for the rest of my life. It's an amazing thought. I like to imagine young David penning that while he's sitting out I don't know where he'd be sitting, under an olive tree, I'm sure. Thinking about God's life and his connection to it, this, this young poet draws up one of the most impactful pieces of literature in the history of humankind. 
And it's, a, and, it's an, and it's a window into a way of life, a way of feeling, a way of, of being, existing, which is fearless. How does a guy in the ancient world suffering under the many tensions and pressures he has to suffer under say, I don't want anything. I am totally full. I have no other desire other than this God. You are with me. Now, this is broken down into two different sections, I think. Your verses one through four are something different than five and six. One through four take you through a typical day in the life of a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I don't need anything else. Now, we're kind of the sheepies here. He takes me in the morning down to the lush pastures. You'd go to the sheepfold as a shepherd. You'd get your sheeps out. You want to care for them, you've got to take them to green pastures where they can be nourished and fed. Then in the heat of the day, you'll take them down by the running waters and under the shade so they can rest and be restored. Probably some more grazing then before the evening time where you take them back into the sheepfold. And all the way, all the way your shepherd is carrying a club and a shepherd's hook. Why? To protect you from danger. So you're invited through the psalmist's eyes to feel a way of life where somebody is totally protecting you, totally taking care of you, totally leading you, and he sees God as that in his life. God is my salvation. God is the one who protects me. I don't need to fight to protect myself. God is the one who takes care of me in the deepest, most fundamental ways. I am at peace because of what I know about God's truth. Now, verse five, look at, he switches from the shepherd motif to the, to the wealthy owner of a home, the wealthy benefactor. And he, and he says, you prepare a feast before me. And there are no enemies of you or of me allowed in that spot. There's no danger here. There's an abundant feast. You anoint my head with oil. You refresh me and heal me and restore me. I'm totally full. It's an amazing picture here at the, at the second part where you have this generosity of God totally emphasized. God is our shepherd on the front end and he's also our host on the second part. He's our leader, our comforter, our guide, our protector. But even beyond that, he lavishes upon us the greatest kind of life. And so the psalmist says, I will not fear. I shall not want. All that I need is here. I'm completely full. And I don't lack anything. You could pull the slide down, Steve. You read that psalm and, you, and it feels good, doesn't it? It just feels wonderful. The idea of living in a land where you no longer fear. Think of how many things you're fearing right now. It's just, what is it today? The third rent, rent payments were due. Paychecks came in. Very few of our paychecks were big enough, you know. Think about the things you fear and desire and worry about right now. So you read Psalm 23 and say, oh man, that's good. It's so good. But it doesn't seem super realistic, does it? This same psalmist David later on becomes a king. And at the tail end of 2 Samuel 24, we see David living in a different kind of mindset. We see him as a mighty king and he's facing tremendous pressure in this world. He has a lot of responsibility. He's commanding vast armies. That hopeful trust that we see in Psalm 23 dissipates. It crushes under the weight of the real world. Church is really great, but at some point you've got to just get realistic. You know? That's what we think. All this stuff is really nice. It's really fun to think about and talk about a couple hours each week, but then you've got to actually get realistic and live in the real world. Well, here's David living in the real world now, the end of 2 Samuel, that, that 24th chapter, it's a little bit confusing to me, and I'm not going to try to flesh the whole thing out. You get into some really deep questions. But I think that the gist of it is very clear. David takes a census of his people, and he wants to know specifically how many warriors he has at his disposal. 
Now, Torah, or the law of God, doesn't prevent census taking. In fact, it gives very clear instructions for how to do it if somebody wants to do it. David must have, we think he must have violated, it doesn't really say. What we know is he takes a census and God is not stoked about it, and a great suffering comes upon the people because of it. This important sense of the story is that David loses sight of the truth that God is Emmanuel, or God is with him. He loses sight of the fact that God is with him, and that God provides what he needs with abundance. David loses sight of that, and then by doing so, he reverts to the way of the world, which is counting. I've got to count and see what I have, because what I have is going to be what determines if I can achieve the good life or not. God says, I give the good life abundantly. We say, thank you, but it's actually the stuff that gives the good life, and more of it means a better life, so we count. We count and we save and we count and we organize. So David does that. He goes into counting mode and he takes the census and he counts up his armies. Now God brings great suffering upon the people to teach him a lesson. And we say, well, why? Why is it a big deal for David to count his armies? Why does it matter if we count people? Isn't it just wise to do that? It makes sense to me. You want to know what you've got, how much more, what what do you need to know what you've got to know how much more you need? So it just makes sense to us. Things are scarce. Welcome to reality. Let's just be realistic here. I think scarcity is the motivating driver behind every census ever taken. We took a census here in the U.S. this last year. Anybody get that big, huge letter? I think it was like 50 pages long. You had to answer all these questions about your income and where you live and who you are and how many children. Our government took a census this past year. We've been taking censuses forever. But at the heart of them, the motivation behind each one is a sense of scarcity. Apparently, we're still suffering today from the same exact mindset back then. We're counting our dollars, we're seeing what's left, we're pining for more. Like that line we just sang, in sin and error, pining, we're longing. Like David, seeing how many warriors we have, how many bombs we have, how many guns and weapons and swords, how big our war machine is, we need to know this, why? Because the world is scarce, there's not enough to go around, and we're not about to lose what we have. We need to protect it, defend it, own it, save it. We become the saviors. Why do we desperately want to know how large our military is, just like David? How large our bank account is? We obsess on these things, I think, because we have come to believe that in this world, there is a real and genuine threat to our well-being. We believe that this world can take away from us something that's really valuable, and we fear it. We learn to fear the world instead of God. We believe that there are limited resources, and we want to be the first in line so that we don't miss out on the good stuff. I don't want to be at the back of the line. Supplies might run out before I get up to get mine. It's a limited edition. It's about limited supply. First come, first serve. Every gold star and executive member gets more benefits than those who aren't members. And that's good if I'm a member. I think that the attitude woven into a census is the attitude that we all happily embrace, even without thinking about it. We want to count what we have compare it to what others have, and know how we are going to leverage our advantages to get ahead in a world where there's not enough to go around. It starts in grade school. It starts in grade school. How are we going to systematize a structure for valuing people, A, B, C, D, E, and F? We start to measure who's worthy of receiving more. It infiltrates every part of our life and our relationships and our parenting work. We just operate in a mindset of scarcity. But is this world actually, truly marked by scarcity? Is there genuinely not enough to go around? Or is this an abundant world because it's a a world created by an abundant God who comes into the world 
to show us just how abundant it is. We've lived in a certain mindset. Maybe Jesus in the Advent is coming. Literally what he's doing before he even says anything is a picture of his abundance. Well, David's census was just one of endless censuses. I've mentioned this, that we've had all through time. And again in Luke 2, we hear about this census being taken. And this one relates to Jesus. Well, it's funny, isn't it? The Christmas story begins with the most iconic symbol of scarcity in our world. Taking a census, I think, is the greatest symbol of our scarcity mindset. And that's how Christmas story begins. That's the backdrop. I think that the logic behind census taking just makes good sense to us in our our perception of reality. So we skip right past this. We're like, oh, okay, census is being taken, let's go. But let's go back to Luke 2 now and think about this a little bit deeper, okay? Not skipping over it, but thinking about Luke is weaving a tapestry here, a background upon which the Bethlehem moment stands brightly. Here it is. Luke 2, verse 1, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Don't think the smaller country above Israel right now, but a whole entire province that included Israel and all the places Jesus was, where he walked and did his stuff and was born and all that. It's all a province of Syria. So, Governor Quirinius is the governor there. They take this census. Verse 3, everyone went into his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him, and she was expecting a child. Interesting, the house of the city of David, who wrote us that great psalm. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. The city itself is a picture of God's endless providence. God providing bread for his people has been thematic since, what, the Exodus? Providing provisions, speaking provisions into the air. We saw it in the Gospel of Mark with Jesus bringing bread into the wilderness area for thousands upon thousands of people. It was a picture of his endless ability to provide what you need. Well, Luke tells us why they took the count here. You'd take a census back in the day for one of two reasons. One was to know who you could recruit for your military, and two was to know who you could tax. In the Jewish system, in their relationship with Rome, Rome was not uh, able to draft out of the Jewish community for its military. So if they're taking a census of the Jews, it's strictly for taxation at this point. So Luke tells us that right at the beginning. They want to know, for them, this, this particular count is about the cash. Mary and Joseph were forced by law then to go back to that checkpoint. We don't know what we mean by uh, go back to one's own town. Was it the place you were born? Probably. Was it the place you were a landowner? Maybe. Where your family of origin still lived? It could be. So we're not totally sure, but somehow they had a measurement for going back to your own town, probably your hometown. And they're forced by law to do this, and away they go. This is an 80-mile trip from... Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Nazareth is up near Galilee. Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. It's probably a four or five day walk. And it's, a, it's dirty, primitive roads. You've got wild animals and thieves along the way. I mean, it's a pretty dangerous run. And they've got a trek all the way down so that they can get counted according to law. And they get to Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's no accident. It's no accident that this city is named that. The Bethlehem star is not just a nice symbol for Christmas decorations. It's a picture of the light of Christ entering into the darkness of our world and our mind. The light of Christ doesn't just pierce into the world in a broad, abstract way. The light of Jesus pierces right into your thinking and into your soul, and into your heart, if you would seek him. 
And it exposes with light some of the shadowy, deathly orders that we've taken on. Look at those stars on your Christmas trees all through the season. And remember, every time you see the star on top of the tree, this is Jesus trying to wake me up in a world that has been primarily darkened. It's a beautiful symbol. I think Luke's opener is intentionally juxtaposing two ways of life here. The ways of the world versus the ways of God. In the context of scarcity and having a census, and there's fear, and there's power wielded in order to secure and defend and get mine before you take it. Mary and Joseph are doing what they're doing because one power in the world is fearful. He wants to know how much money he can get. For what? For expansion, for solidarity, for security, for military. That's why they need it. So that's all happening. And then we have a city of David, the one who said, I shall not want, in his most famous psalm, the one who said, I have no fear at all. You're, you're literally, in the first seven verses of Luke, are looking at a light and a darkness reality. It's unbelievable. The whole world that they're in is characterized by the same values and thoughts and fears that ours is today. We have a city named the house of bread after God's endless providence. The one who gives bread in the wilderness. The one who makes food by speaking it. The world is just chugging along as per usual. But the advent of Jesus shocks us. And it wakes us up to start imagining a new possibility. A different way of life. A different attitude toward possessions. A different attitude toward Christmas presents. A different attitude toward our time. A different attitude toward food and money and resources and our homes. That's what's happening right here in these first verses. Their society way back then was built on the same notion of scarcity that ours is, which meant there wasn't enough to go around. And Luke hints at this the next couple verses. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Things were scarce. There wasn't room for Jesus. Wrapped him up in strips of cloth. Some of you I know believe that that might mean uh, golden fleece diapers at this point. That was just a movie, though. He's not really wrapped in golden fleece diapers, just swaddling cloths. Very humble. The accommodations here uh, were, were very primitive. Uh, you don't think of an inn as, as like we would today. Think of it as kind of a courtyard of stalls all the way around it. So the owner of the inn would have to provide fire and fodder for the animals and then just the space. But you're a traveler, so you have your own animals and your own bedding and all that. So you'd get this stall and it's big, you know. Imagine if this here was the courtyard and then you had a structure all the way around with these different stalls for your caravans. Those were all full. It's very likely that the Christmas story happens out right here in the middle in the courtyard where the animals are being fed. Our English word manger just means place where animals feed. So it could be there. I know there's lots of different ways to think about where it happened. But we know that it happens in a context of overcrowding where he's, he and the family, Jesus and his family, are being pushed off to the margins. Travelers brought their food, they brought everything that they needed, and yet they didn't have what they needed from the people in the city. Now, this is an interesting sort of foreshadowing. If you've been with us for the past year plus, we've walked through the gospel according to Mark all the way up to the point where Jesus comes in in the Passover festival. And what was Jerusalem like during the Passover? crowded, totally packed with people. Perhaps there's almost a little bit of a tipping of the hand here by Luke to say just in the same way there was no room for Jesus in Bethlehem except out where the animals feed. There was also no room for Jesus in the great holy city on the holiest of days except for on a wooden cross on the outside of the city wall. No room for God 
Where is God in your life? Is there really no room for him? Or is the room that you have in your life just filled with other things that feel more important? There was no room for him in Bethlehem. There was no room for him in Jerusalem much later. We are watching Jesus enter into a world full of human beings just like you and me. And in their heart of hearts, they are so overcrowded that he could not fit in. Full. We might observe that even to this day, he is both on the move in our world and searching for his people just like then. Is that not what he is doing? God is on the move. It's a new thing happening. He's breaking into the world for the first time ever to become a human being. And why is he doing it? He's searching for his people. He's coming to rescue. God is on the move today in the same way, trying to search for his sheep. And when they hear his voice, they know the shepherd is calling. God's on the move, gathering together his people, just like he was in this story. Or as he's beginning to, anyhow, in this story. And yet just today, as it was then, God consistently finds an overcrowded space. He consistently finds rejection because everything else is too full. I once valued my grades in school so highly, getting good grades. It was such a high value to me that my life was so crowded my own wife didn't really fit into it. I just needed to get those grades. I had to get ahead. It was so important. I would spend hours and hours and hours away from family, children, friends, people, church, whatever. Why? Driven. And the world praises me all the way through it. Oh, so hardworking. Oh, so high achieving. Oh, you're so good lost and broken and hurting and deeply in pain. But I'm doing what I have to do to be able to secure what I need in this scarcity-driven world. I don't want to miss out on the good stuff. I don't want to be last in line. I need to be first. I'll do what it takes. What do we love? What is your affection focused on? What values do you hold so deeply in your own inn, in your own home, in your own life, where there's really no room for Jesus? Why do our schedules and our afternoons and evenings reach these exhausting breaking points where we realize, I don't even have time to hang out with you for like two, three more weeks. Just got so much going on. There was a point in my life where I told Allie, I have grown sick and tired of hearing myself tell people when they say, hey, how are you doing? I say, oh man, I'm super busy. I got, I got annoyed with my own voice saying those words because I said it so often. Why does this happen? We don't have enough time to live in that Sabbath rest, in the shalom of God, to experience that lively life. That has dissipated for almost every one of us in the way of America. The answer to the why question is one of the greatest ironies I think we've, we can ever look at. Our lives are totally overcrowded because we think there's not enough. Scarcity and the mindset of scarcity drives us to never feeling like we have enough. Your life, your life, think about this, is overcrowded and exhausted and suffocating because you've been born into a mindset that tells you there's not enough to go around. From kindergarten on, probably earlier, you've been raised to believe that. With the rest of the world, we believe that God's creation is characterized and driven by a fear of scarcity or limitation, not enough. How different how different this kind of anxiety and fear is from the attitude that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything, I lack nothing. He restores me, I fear no danger, you are with me. Emmanuel, God with us, you're with me. 
That cup is completely full. It brims over in your house, at your party, at your table. I'm invited and there's endless provision. That is a very different mindset than the reality we see in our world. We want to live there, but we ache sometimes just thinking about it. So I'd ask you, how are you doing this morning? My brothers and sisters here, how are we doing as a community? Are we rolling into Christmas with peace, joy, excitement to just spend time with each other? Are we rolling into Christmas with lists and anxieties and fears that have come up already here on the third day of December? How is your soul? Do you feel deeply at peace? Free? Do you feel free? Do you feel filled with love and interest for other people? Or are other people kind of obstacles in your way of getting done what you feel like you need to get done? Do you feel open and honest and generous? Or do you feel like you need to stay constrained and careful, cautious? Are you worried about getting what you need, wondering if you'll ever have enough? Listen, says the great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. He's speaking the words of God here. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. We're like, what are you talking about? I can't go buy stuff if I don't have money. Isaiah is inviting you to glimpse God's world. Come and buy and eat, you who have no money. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is God's world. It seems impossible. This advent of the incarnation of God, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Yes, long the world has laid in sin and error, pining, waiting, longing, until he appeared and the soul started to feel its worth. I am what? I am somebody worth that kind of gift? God's not giving you a, 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 a it's not a re-gift. <laughs> it's not a, something he got on a super special sale. It's not an easy gift. It's the most valuable, infinitely valuable gift he could give his own son. Does your soul feel its worth in that moment where you recognize this is your gift? You're invited to his table. He's gonna shepherd you, protect you, give you green pastures, shalom, rest, and you're invited to the banquet. Do you feel how valuable you are or do you say, I'm not quite valuable enough until I get this? I'm not a good parent until I buy this. I'm not really a person that's worth anything until fill in the blank. We all fill the blank in in very different ways. Will this Christmas season fill your mind with the scarcity lie that says you don't have enough? Will it fill you with lists of things that must be done or else with desires you cannot meet because you have not made enough money this year? With fears about children being disappointed by what you cannot give them? Or... Will this season fill you with the thrill of hope as our weary community rejoices? Rejoicing because in yonder Bethlehem breaks a new and glorious morn. We sing it. Do we believe it? Do we really recognize that that bright and shining star over Bethlehem was the beginning of a new dawn, a new possibility, a new existence, or do we just sing the songs and then freak out about what we don't have? Do you see it as the beginning of an abundance that ends scarcity once and for all? By fixing your gaze upon the lie that says, my cup is not flowing over the brim. My needs are not yet fully met. I shall want and I shall fear, for you are not with me. 
I am my own. I'm on my own. With that kind of thinking, will you fall down under the pressure? Will you fall down under the kind of pressures that this world deceitfully foists upon you? Or will you fall on your knees and hear the angels singing? Will you hear the angels' voices? Because this is the night that Christ was born, the night of the advent, the divine night. Will you see your Christmas tree and dwell on the hope that the symbolic star on top represents? Or will you look at your Christmas tree and feel anxiety when you look underneath its branches and hope you can have enough stuff there? What are you going to fix your gaze upon this season? Scarcity is the belief that no matter how much we have, it is not yet enough. Therefore, we must always scale up. We must grow or die. We must have more or we will suffer. But abundance is the belief that what you need, you have. What you've always needed has already been given to you in God. There is no such thing as a limited amount of time for people who will not die. And that is the Christian. There's no such thing as a limited amount of time for people who share in the indestructible life of Christ. Will you believe in this abundance? A family that is ruled by the gods of scarcity is stressfully wasting its life away. It's toiling to glean more and more. Perhaps your family has fallen into that darkness. My family falls into that darkness frequently, and I have to continuously turn back to Jesus. It is so easy. I could drive down to downtown Portland right now, and there'd be five or six billboards that would pull me back into that mentality of not having enough, and I have to turn to Jesus in that moment. The family ruled by the false gods of scarcity is never satisfied. But the family that's ruled by the God of abundance, or the couple, or the grandma, or the grandpa, or the youth kid, or the young adult, or the single, anybody who's ruled by the God of abundance sees the deception in every billboard and every television ad. I'm teaching my son, Wesley, every time a TV ad comes up, I teach him everything they're saying is a lie. Boom. <laughs> now he tells me every time a commercial comes by, he says, Dad, did that make you want to have it? And I say, well, yeah, it kind of did make me want to have it. He's like, it's a lie. Don't believe it. I'm like, good, good man, Wesley. I'm trying to train him. Train him right now in his early days to recognize that what he needs is not what the television says he needs. This is where abundance even changes shape. Our vision of what abundant living looks like is so characterized by what we see coming out of Hollywood. But perhaps it's not. I lived in Tennessee for a long time. I remember a family that lived in a very small room. They had like seven kids. They owned a horse and a car that barely worked. Tin roof, no insulation. You didn't need insulation in Tennessee. But I remember looking at them, just a very, very dirt poor family. And they'd play the fiddle and the banjo and the family would get together and sing. And they would play around in the yard, no grass on the lawn, just dirt. And it was a poverty-stricken and yet I remember and will always remember for the rest of my life. Our family had more abundance according to the way we measure it most often. But I longed to be a part of that family because it was filled with peace. They had an abundant life. Nobody in that family had a college degree. Nobody in that family made any kind of decent money. But those kids loved mom and dad. Mom and dad loved those kids and they were filled with the glory of heaven. It's a dirt floor and a tin roof. Abundance changes in the light of the gospel. And you start to, if you would submit to the Lord of hosts, you start to see just how much life I have thrown away pursuing something that is worthless and how much life is at hand if I would just live with Jesus. 
Advent is the most poignant time of year to remember Jesus' generosity to you. This is Christmas. And when you live with this heart of God, fear will dissipate from your life. You will become new. You will see how the abundant way leads to more abundance and greater freedom and greater shalom. The other path of scarcity only leads to more scarcity. You know this. Think of the last thing you just couldn't live without. You thought about it. You looked, you did the Google search, best, to whatever it was, best soldering iron for stained glass. I looked at that yesterday because Annabelle and I were doing some stained glass work in the garage. And I have a crappy soldering iron. And I thought, I need the best one. I Google it on my phone. What's the best one? Then this morning, as I'm thinking about preparing the sermon, what's in the back of my head? I need a better soldering iron. If I didn't have that crappy one, I wouldn't have made those mistakes on the stained glass thing we did. I need to spend more money. I need something else. While I'm prepping a sermon to share with you, my brothers and sisters, I still have the deathly order gnawing at the back of my skull. I need to fix my gaze upon Jesus and, and shut down that nonsense that says I need something else. Step into a life of thankfulness, a life of peace. Start giving my time and my life and my resources to people because that's what God does. God seems to have a real life squared up more than I do. I want to live in his life. And the same is true with love. Scarcity breeds more scarcity and fear. Abundance breeds more abundance and love. And love itself leads to more and more love. We start loving one another in this community in the deepest possible way, then it will only compound and it will only flourish and create more and more love here. Surely he taught us to love one another. So I'm gonna close now. I could just keep going on this. I think you can just see the new possibilities opening up in the gospel, but I wanna close with a devotion. It's from the author that I blurbed on your bulletin this morning, Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament guy. He has a devotion on, a whole small book on Advent devotions. And this is one that's very tied to what, we, uh, what we've been talking about this morning. Thank you for listening to me talk about these things. And I ask that you would think about them deeply as we have lunch together and move forward. We can live in a different way than the world does. And it's rich and it's beautiful. Here's Walter Brueggemann's, um, here's his devotional. This is beautiful prose. It is written in Deuteronomy that the poor will always be with you. It is written elsewhere that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. It is written in the American psyche that the big ones will always eat the little ones. It is written in the hearts of many hurting ones that their situation will always be, will always be abusive and exploitative. It is written and it is believed and it is lived that the world is a hostile and destructive place. You must be on guard and maintain whatever advantage you can. It is written and recited like a mantra, world without end. But in the middle of that hopelessness, Advent issues a vision of another day written by the poet, given to Israel amidst the deathly cadence. We do not know when, but we know for sure. The poet knows for sure that this dying and killing is not forever because another world has been spoken. Another decision has been made. A word has been given that shatters our conventions, which bursts open the prospect for life in a world of death. The poem lingers with dangerous power, even for us, even now. Watch. Watch that vision because it ends in a dramatic moment of transformation. The old city is full of blacksmiths who have so much work to do. Listen, you can hear the hammer on the anvil. The smiths are beating and pounding iron, reshaping it, beating swords into plowshares. Bombs are being decontaminated and diffusing the great weapon systems. 
The fear is dissipating. The hate is collapsing. The anxiety is lessening. The buildup of competitive threat is being reversed. The nations are returning to their proper vocation, care of the earth, love of God's creation, bounty for your neighbor, enough for all, with newness, deep joy, hard work, all because the vicious cycles are ended and life becomes possible. This vision sounds impossible. It sounded impossible the first time it was uttered, and it has not become more realistic in the meantime. Advent, nonetheless, is a time for a new reality. It is not the poem, but the old power arrangements of deathliness that are unrealistic. They are unrealistic among the nations and in our communities and churches and families. There is a new possibility among us, rooted in God's love and God's suffering power. Power from God's love breaks the vicious cycles. We've seen them broken in Jesus, and occasionally we see them broken in our own lives. It is promised that the cycles can be broken, disarmament will happen, and life can be different. It is promised and it is coming in God's good time. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and showing us what's real. You are our God. You are a God of love and suffering power. Would you speak once again to this community, to Central Bible Church today and throughout this Advent season, as we encounter the Christmas trees throughout our city and in our worlds, would you teach us through your spirit to look at the Bethlehem star on the top of the Christmas trees and fix our gaze upon you, upon your house of bread, upon your nature as the endless provider, the abundant God. Help us so that we can break free from the vicious cycle of stressing ourselves out over what we don't have, what ends up under the tree. We so easily and quickly capitulate to fear. We grow so numb, God, to the way we, we accept the deathly way of this world so quickly. So we pray this morning. Please break into our lives. Shut down these vicious cycles. Break our whole community free. Free. So that we can live in a renewed trust in your life. We can be thankful, abundant toward one another, and generous like you. Oh, you are so fantastic. You're just, we love you. I speak on behalf of the whole community here and say we love you. We trust you with our community. We trust you with our very lives. Amen.